Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I'm good. We've got a a pretty amazing episode uh, this time. Not that they all aren't great. If you look back at some of the names that have popped up uh, for season one, it's just, it's sort of amazing the people who've agreed to talk to us. And today is no different. Yeah. I I like the fact that you stated it that way, have agreed to talk to us. I think that's the real key to the benefits program. Uh, (laughs) Why anybody, I mean, Really, I don't mean to disparage you or me or this podcast, but we have had some incredible guests for two guys from Minnesota who are just sort of starting this thing. We have gotten to talk to some really great uh, magicians today included. Yeah, we have a great episode. The fact that we got to talk to David Kay is amazing. Uh, We also have a jam pack in that we're going to do something we haven't done before, which is have a second interview uh, after the chapter is read with our friends Morgan and West. But it it occurred to me that uh, we don't have any stats on this, but I think a certain percentage of people listen just to the interview and another percentage listen just to the chapter every episode. And then another percentage listen to both. But the biggest number of people are people who don't listen to the podcast at all. And that's a very big number. So just to put <laughs> uh, it in perspective. We're huge in Switzerland. We are yes. huge in Switzerland. We are. We are very, we appreciate Mark Heron and everything he does in Switzerland for us. So what some people may not realize is, uh, you know, we always post uh, in the show notes where the, where the chapter episode begins, in case you just want to jump to that. Uh, but the whole show is indexed and some podcasts go to the trouble to index. Uh, and we're one of them. Others don't. So just as a general rule, uh, there's five segments. You can, if you have a little forward button on whatever device you're listening to, uh, first segment is always our welcome introduction. Second segment is always the interview. Third segment is always the post-interview discussion. The fourth segment is whatever chapter we're doing that week. And segment number five is the wrap-up. This episode is the uh, the exception that proves the rule because there'll be six things because we have an extra interview. So it'll be indexed six times. But if uh, if you didn't know, if you want to just jump to stuff throughout the uh, throughout the podcast, feel free to use that index. I wouldn't. I'd listen straight from top to bottom. Yeah, because you're a completist. Um, we are shaking things up a bit. We're going to talk to David Kay in just a moment. But after uh, you read through chapter 18, because this is in fact episode 119, which means it's chapter 18. Uh, we're going to have a, a quick check-in with our friends Morgan and West because there's stuff that happens in chapter 18 that I wasn't really sure about when I wrote it. And um, they have reinforced for me that it is, I was a semi-correct in that. But we'll get to that after we listen to chapter 18. Right now, we want to talk about kids show magic because that's what Eli is about to deal with in this chapter. Uh, as I've said in the past, everything I know and by extension, what Eli knows about kids' magic, I think I pretty much learned from listening to and reading uh, things that David Kay has said. He plays Silly Billy. That's his character. Uh, he is probably the most busy uh, kids magician in the New York area and really, really knows his stuff. In fact, as I was editing his interview, uh, I had it actually on. So um, I didn't have headphones on. My wife was listening in the other room and she came in and she said, he is brilliant. Uh, he should write a book. And I think he has written a number of things, um, but he just really knows kids inside and out. And that's what makes his show so interesting, because I have no experience at all in kid show magic, except what I've heard him talk about. Now, you, uh, as a kid, helped your older brother, Rick, do his magic shows. Was he doing kid show magic? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, 
certainly he did kids shows and birthday parties. Uh, and sometimes I did not have to, he didn't need me for those, but the bigger shows that he did was more of a mixed audience where there were kids and uh, teenagers and adults uh, in the audience. And my brother, you know, many of the influences of comedy in my life are, you know, absolutely apparent if you listen to me or, or watch me on stage. But one that may not be apparent is probably my biggest influence, which was my brother. So watching how my brother uh, structured his show and allowed it to kind of flow for every type of age group that was there uh, was huge in terms of how I understand dealing with an audience. My brother's magic uh, uh, appealed, I think, straight across the board. And um, whether it was an all adult audience or uh, a mixed audience, my brother structured it so that there were rabbits and doves. And, you know, uh, there was a trick that I always loved called the devil's handkerchief that he would do with an egg and a kid. And, it, you know, he would look like he had made a horrible mistake and there was a terrible you know, catastrophe about to happen. That was not the kid's fault. It was my brother's fault. And and then, of course, magically, with the magic word that my brother used, schlobbity hobbity gobbin, everything turned out okay. And uh, and so, yeah, the idea of kids' magic still listening to uh, Silly Billy uh, talk about not just you know kids' magic, but sections of age groups need different kinds of kids magic it can't just be you know this appeals to this and this appeals to that that was new to me so um it, it, it educational this whole thing has always been educational for me yeah totally educational that's uh he he is so smart about it i remember in our last episode chris Hendricks said that performing for adults is like performing for polite kids he, he's gonna give us a lot more insight into those differences let's just dive right into it the first thing we asked him was uh how did he stumble first into magic and then into kids magic and it was sort of an interesting answer So what led you to go down that path to be a kid's show magician? Well, I actually never set out to do that specifically. It was more of an accident. After college, I got a job, which I didn't like at all. And so I quit and started street performing in New York City, where I live. And I doubled my salary by going street performing. So that was a big, big deal. But as I'm street performing... People asked me if I did magic shows for kids and I didn't, but I said, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. You say yes. And then I went to the magic shop and I asked the guy, what do I need? And the guy sold me some tricks and I did my first kid show and then I did my second. And I, I think I must have been really good because one show kept leading to another. And the more street performing I did, the more that also led to more shows. And eventually I did so many shows, I stopped street performing and I was just doing shows full time. Is there a, there's got to be a big difference between performing for adults and performing for kids. Uh, just talk about the difference there for us. Yeah. Well, we have to understand that children's brains are different from adult brains. And because of that, they experience magic differently. I've never sort of laid out the what the differences are, but I can tell you two, two things. 
The first is a magician is a magician who, because he can break a rule of nature. He can make something float. He can make something disappear. And in, in the real world, you can't do that. But for a, a child doesn't know the rules of nature. And so you have to do magic tricks and plots for the tricks that relate to the universe of the child. So, you know, if you do a sort of a multi-phase rope routine, that's not very interesting to kids because they don't necessarily have a lot of experience with rope. And, and actually a better example is cards because kids don't know anything about playing cards. They don't know that there's four suits. They don't know how many cards are in a deck of cards. They just don't know. So you have to do magic for kids with objects and plots that relate to their lives. So that's why this, this trick, the coloring book is so popular because kids in the, in the world of a child, coloring book is a thing. And kids know that you can't make the coloring book colored in unless you use magic to, to color it in. So, so the first thing is, you, if you're going to break a law of nature, it has to be a law of nature that children understand and know about. And the second thing is, so much of um, a child's life is magic, especially younger kids, three, four, five, even sixes, the, a microwave oven, a cell phone, a television, there's so many things in, in life that are magical. And so if everything is magic, then nothing is magic. So if nothing is magic, then if I take a rope and cut it and put it together, if nothing is magic, then that's no big deal. Because, you know, maybe you use the self-adhering rope that I maybe does exist, but I didn't know about it. But maybe there is something like that. So I assume that's what was what you did, what you used. You used Velcro. Uh, in fact, if you if you did a, a if you did a cut and restored rope trick for kids, they might even yell out Velcro. You used Velcro or magnets. So the, the, the mistake that magicians make when they perform magic for kids is they do the trick. The trick ends big finale. And the kids think, well, so what? Because, like I said, everything is magic, so nothing is magic. So the key to doing a magic show for kids is to de-emphasize the effect and emphasize the routine. Kids much prefer to laugh and point and scream and get involved during the routine. They enjoy that part more than the effect at the end of the routine, the climax of the routine. And I teach this by saying that it's not the destination, it's the journey. So every trick has a beginning and an end. And if you separate the beginning from the end, you put in a long middle. And the middle is the part that the kids enjoy the most. The middle is where the kids are laughing and pointing and getting excited and answering questions and interacting with the magician. And that's the fun stuff that they really, really enjoy and then the, the plot resolves itself with an effect of some kind, and that's the end of the trick. But the, the, the mistake that adult performers make is they, the, the, the climax of the trick is the whole point of the, of the experience. And for kids, they don't care so much about that. And this is the mistake that magicians make uh, when it comes to performing for kids, who, people who are not experienced with it. Uh, t t can we talk just a little bit about the differences even within the age groups of kids, like stuff that might work for a 
six-year-old might not work for a 10-year-old. Stuff that works for a 10-year-old might not be appropriate for a six-year-old. You you kind of got this laid out a little bit, haven't you? Yes. This is another interesting difference between doing a magic show for adults and doing a magic show for kids. A professional children's magician does not do the same show for all age children. Uh, let me rephrase that. You can't have a kid show like you would have an adult show. Like I have a show that I do for adults. This is my show. But you can't do that for kids. You can't just have one kid show. You need to change your show depending on the ages of the children in the audience. Now, there's something called family shows where it's going to be lots of kids of many ages and adults. And so that's one kind of show because this show, you're going to have all ages. But if you do a school show, you're going to get a narrower range of ages in the audience. And if you do birthday parties, you get an even narrower range of ages. Because when I do a birthday party show for a five-year-old, there's 20 kids in the audience and they're all five. So that's my, that's going to be Um, in fact, easier for me because I'm going to do my five-year-old show. Okay, so I divide uh, kids into three age ranges, three to six, seven to nine, and 10 to 12. Older than 12, you do your adult show because 13-year-old kids Well, because their brains are done growing and maturing for the most part, at least when it comes to magic, you can, you don't, when I say adult show, I, again, I don't mean like dirty or blue or, or anything like that. It's just, you know, the material is, uh, is not for children. Okay. So three to six, seven to nine and 10 to 12, three to six year olds love silly stuff. Everything for this age range is silly. There's a lot of slapstick. There's a lot of seeming stupidity on my part. Like if I, if I'm holding a red silk, I might call it a blue silk and that makes me look dumb, but to children, that's hilarious. It just is. So, and of course it's, it's funny to them for a lot of reasons. Uh, One is that an adult would make a mistake like that because adults are sort of all powerful when when you're a child. So for an adult to 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 get it wrong and for the child to correct an adult is also a very exciting experience for a child. So slapstick, misnaming things, getting physical injury, getting hurt when a magic when if if I have I do a bit where uh, I have this inflatable magic wand. It's an inflatable two, two foot long wand. The child holds it. I've got my hand wrapped around the kid's hand that's holding the wand. And we wave the wand together over a prop and we say the magic words. And then at the end of the magic words, the kid hits me in the head. And it looks from the audience point of view that the kid on his own whacked me in the head with this inflatable wand. And boy, there is there is nothing funnier than physical injury, uh, which is why all the Warner Brothers cartoons are about one character trying to kill the other character, uh, whether it's Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny or the Roadrunner and the uh, Coyote or Tom and Jerry. So there's a lot of (laughs) physical injury. So when you get to seven to nine, you got to slow down on the silly. 
because these kids are very, very excited that they're not young kids anymore. And so if you try to be very silly with seven to nine-year-olds, they would feel that the show is beneath them. So you have to start slowing down on the silliness. There's still silliness involved, but you slow down on the silliness and you increase wordplay. Seven years old is when kids start getting interested in jokes and riddles. They're not jokes. They're all riddles, but kids call them jokes, even though they're riddles. But wordplay, puns, it's really wonderful because it opens up a whole additional realm of comedy that you can do for the kids. So wordplay for the older kids, and you're going to slow down on the silliness. And then the older kids, 10 to 12, they are very proud that they're big kids. And as far as they're concerned, they're done growing up and they're not children anymore. And there's nothing you can do that will fool them or trick them. And so you do a trick, they will yell out what they think is the explanation, even though it's just impossible for the trick to be done via that method, they, are, they will insist that that's the method. And so you, as a performer, you have to, through the, through the routine, you have to eliminate every possible method so that you can end with a magic trick that doesn't, isn't followed by, oh, it was, it's a magnet. I mean, sometimes they'll just yell out, it's a magnet. Uh, so I do a, um, a trick with a voodoo doll. It's a little five inch, four inch uh, straw person. It, it lays flat on my wrist, on my palm. And then it, the, the, the thing tilts up and stands straight up on my palm. It used to be done with a pencil. Now that people do it with this voodoo doll and I do this trick and I, well, when I first, when I first did the trick, the kids would yell, uh, strings, there's strings. So then I bring up the kid and I say, check my fingers. Are there any strings or threads on my, on my hands? And they would say, no, then I do the trick. Then I did the trick again. And then they said, they yelled out magnets. So then the next time I do the trick, I say, look at my hands. Are there any magnets or strings or threads? And the kid says, no, then it raises up on my palm. And now I have a trick. Uh, so you have to, through the, through the, through the patter and the routine you want, you need to eliminate all the possible explanations so that when the trick is over, the kids are satisfied and recognize that they've seen a magic trick. You know, uh, in this chapter that we're going to uh, hear after we're done chatting with you, uh, Eli is about to perform for adults as well as kids. How, talk about walking that line. Yeah. Um, well, when there's adults, you've got two aspects to, to that. One is you've got adults watching at, at, in addition to the kids. And the second is you've got a wide range of ages of kids. And so a good performer should make jokes for the adults. Um, and again, doesn't mean like dirty jokes. Uh, it just means references that the adults get that the kids don't get, which I do constantly uh, when I have that kind of a show. So you want to entertain the adults. Um, at their level, uh, uh, you know, so you want, and when I do, when I do a show like that, parents often come up to me and say, do you do stand-up comedy? And they ask that because uh, I've been very funny 
to them, you know, during the show. So so that's a good sign when that happens. So you want to make jokes for the adults, jokes that are specific for the adults. And then you also want to do tricks that are great for all ages at the same time. And I have, uh, you know, my list of tricks that work for that uh, audience. Sometimes you have to sacrifice the, the young kids. When you do a family show, you, you, you don't want to be too silly during your family show because then the older kids will poo-poo you and think, well, this, is, this show is for babies. I'm not going to pay attention. So you, in a sense, you sometimes sacrifice the, the specific enjoyment of the threes, fours, and fives for the sake of the group. You just can't be that silly. On the, on the other hand, there are some tricks that have silly elements in them and very strong magic. So then they can be enjoyed by all ages at the same time at different levels. Nice. Fantastic. What Eli knows about children's magic and what his, his friend Nathan knows about children's magic, I got from you. And one of the things you've written about is the, the importance of making your character, Silly Billy, the butt of the jokes and not the kids. Because so frequently, even as a kid, I remember when you saw these sorts of shows, the kids look foolish and you don't do that. Could you just talk a little bit about why that's important and how you came to that? Well, now this is interesting because, you know, in the old days, things were different. There's a very famous prop called a breakaway wand. So the magician has a magic wand, a 12-inch magic wand, hands it to the to the child helper, and the wand basically breaks. And in the old days, uh, the magician would say, what did you do? Which now is very is a very old fashioned reaction. And nobody who knows what they're doing would ever say that anymore, Um, because what you're doing by saying that is you are blaming the child for breaking one of your props and, you know, done wrong could really upset the child. But, you know, times change. And this is this was, in fact, the way people used to do a lot of gags in their show. And there's, there's actually a slew of props called breakaway props. And in the old days, magicians would just do them in sequence and the kid would have all these things and all this stuff would break. Now, I mentioned that silliness is very funny for three to six-year-olds. So when a prop breaks, this is very funny to a child. But now instead of blaming your helper, you should blame yourself. So, so that's w- one reason that I, that I do do it the way I, I do it. And you can blame yourself by saying, instead of saying, what did you do? By saying, um, how did that happen? Or what happened here? Um, or something along those lines. And you might even say, you know, you might even take the blame for the prop, for the mistake as well. But um, so number one, I'm doing this because you don't want to blame the child for ruining your show. Okay. And the second thing is, um, you know, in classic comedy, there's a straight man and then there's the, the clown character, the, the fall guy in Abbott and Costello, you'd have a, that kind of a situation. And the, the audience is very comfortable with that. It's a classic theatrical formula. So anyway, 
if you've got a choice of who that fall guy is going to be, it should be the performer because it, by today's standards, it seems reasonable. So yes, so 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 the kid hits me in the head with that magic wand that I was talking about, and that's very funny. Uh, I wouldn't hit the kid in the head with the wand, but it's funny when the when it when I get hit in the head. It's funny when I have a prop and uh, well, and it breaks, or if I drop something on the floor, or if I make a mistake, like I try to do a trick and it fails. All of these things make me the butt of the jokes, and uh, this is the right way to do it. I haven't had the chance to see you do a full show right. with a kid audience, and I've actually really only seen, since I started researching and writing these books, two performances like that. One with David Williamson, which I think was really more of a mixed group, and one with, uh, with Chris Capehart. Okay. And in both instances, and I imagine this is true for you as well, the shows were terrific. But if you were looking at them from the through the viewpoint of audience management, their, <laughs> their skills were phenomenal. Yes. At keeping the show going and not making it about audience management. But that was a constant underlying thing that that, that group of kids was, in particular with, with Capehart, yeah. it, it is honed to a perfection. Yeah. Um, how would you, how have you developed your own sense of, of managing the audience without having it get in the way of the show? Right. Well, I want my kind of show. I want the kids to be comfortable yelling stuff out at me. I want them to yell stuff out, say stuff, feel free to participate verbally. And so I try to create a sense of what some people call controlled chaos, and I know there's a line above, beyond which I'm going to be in trouble. But I do love bringing the kids, this is a figurative line, to that line, but not past it. Because, well, because it's, it's really a fun show when the kids are, are animated and, 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 and yelling stuff out and stuff. I like to get the kids excited, but I need to make sure they don't cross the line. So... The way to do that is to seat them on the floor and not on a chair, because on a chair, they can go from seated to attack in less time than if they're seated on the floor. It takes a split second longer for the kids who are sitting on the floor to, to sort of ready, right? There's the ready position, which means they get up on one knee. And now they're on, and then they're on the second knee, and now they're attacking. So they, it gives you a longer, uh, and 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 as and in your show, in my show, I have to be very vigilant, and I'm scanning the the audience constantly, looking for a kid who might be doing that, and then sort of pausing that and making sure they don't get up. That question even goes back to the to the idea of why adult magicians have so much trouble with kid shows. And that is because they have to deal with this situation as well, which they're not used to, you know, adult magicians. And I, I, I complain about this all the time. Adult magicians don't know how good they have it. The audience is seated in, in lovely, comfortable chairs. Uh, the magician is on a stage with a curtain and with lighting and uh, and with a beautiful sound system. And that's a great show. The lights go down and the adults stop talking they, they, automatically because they've been conditioned to do that. 
and then the show starts when you when the lights go down on a children's show the kids start screaming and hooting and hollering and that that just means to them it's time to start yelling out at at, at the theater so kids shows not only do we have the psychology involved uh, with dealing with kids, but we also often have a physical situation to deal with. The size of the room, the, the layout of the chairs, uh, the lighting, there's distractions in a kid's show. There's a ton of problems that you have to deal with when you're a children's magician that you that you don't just don't happen when you're a, a magician for adults it is really interesting to think about all the different things that a kids magician has to deal with that uh, adult magicians just do not have to and if if you haven't seen a kids magician do a performance we have some links to silly billy in the show notes Definitely check those out because you get a real sense of what that sort of audience management looks like. And when it's done really well, it seems like just it's just the show going on. I've also seen uh, kids performers where they're just like a poor substitute teacher with a really unruly class. And and the whole show is about management when, in fact, I think what David's talking about is making that an underlying thing, but it doesn't it doesn't take over the show. Now, you have dealt with all kinds of audiences over the years, from audiences that uh, have may have had some alcohol to corporate audiences to uh, every, and everything in between. What is your feeling about the importance of audience management? First of all, I think an audience, if the performer comes out and proves he is competent. He doesn't have to be brilliant. He just has to prove that he's competent. Then an audience will relax a little bit and you can then control them in a way that you couldn't if you had not proved, hey, I got something to say and and you should hear it because occasionally it's going to be funny. And if you prove that right out of the gate, then there's some things you can do after that uh, to control an audience. But you got to do that. I think you got to do that first. You got to prove that you have some level of skill or an audience is going to run all over you. Well, you know, um, I've seen some really great audience management in person, particularly a kid's magician named uh, Chris Capehart. I don't know if you've ever seen Chris. He is a master at keeping the show going and keeping the kids in line and having fun at at the same time, but really ruling with an iron fist. Uh, but that that fist has got a velvet glove on it and um, just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, Eli is about to deal with that. So why don't we jump into uh, chapter 18. In chapter 17, just to remind everyone what's going on, Eli found out that the older psychic Franny had been attacked. Eli and Megan went to the hospital to see her. She's in a coma. Megan's able to provide an alibi for Eli during the attack of Franny because they were together. Megan's ex-husband Pete shows up. Uh, Eli runs into Clive, the British journalist in the lobby, and then he goes to Akashic Records and grills the uh, overly handsome clerk, Mike, Michael, to find out where he was the night before. And that takes us right into chapter 18, where Eli has to start dealing with the kid show he promised Nathan he would do. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 18. As intriguing as my conversation with Michael had been, I soon discovered that I had more daunting issues at hand. I had a kid's magic show to get ready for, and although it was my intention to simply 
glanced through the material that afternoon in advance of the show the following day, as soon as I looked at what Nathan had left me, everything changed, and not for the better. Nathan had brought over all of his props in a grocery sack, which had been stashed, unopened, in a corner of my apartment since his most recent visit to the shop. It was only upon opening the prop bag and seeing the mysterious paraphernalia within and then reading his instructions for the first time that it dawned on me that I was in trouble, serious trouble. To say that his notes were less than copious would be an understatement. On a small slip of paper in his neat legible scrawl, he had written the following. Intro. Set character. Parrot bit. Four minutes. Dinosaur story. Confetti or rubber bands as needed. Three minutes. SpongeBob takeoff. Three minutes. Remote controls, etc. Add extra streamers. Balloon animals song parody. Three minutes. Adapt verses for birthday kid. Monkey camp story with bananas. Three minutes. Eleven plastic, one real. Balloon finale. Four minutes. Encore. Rest of balloons. The only thing on the list that I completely understood was that it added up to 20 minutes plus an encore. Somehow in my naivete, I had assumed that he was giving me, you know, his act, including a script and specific instructions for each effect. Instead, I got a random list of words, some of which I recognized, but most of which made no sense as a structured magic act for kids. Granted, he was my friend, and I had certainly seen him perform, but not recently, and certainly not with the idea of duplicating what I was seeing. I made several semi-frantic unanswered calls to his cell phone and then settled into some serious fretting. Then I realized that panicking would get me nowhere. So I sat in the middle of my living room floor and went through all the items in the bag. There were two bags of balloons. One was the bag I gave him for the special helium balloon gag, so the others, I assumed, were suitable for balloon animals. I hadn't made balloon animals since I was a teenage magician, and as I quickly discovered, it is nothing like riding a bike. Despite my best efforts, every one that I attempted resembled a sickly boa constrictor in the midst of devouring an anvil. The bag also included several electronic devices that I didn't recognize a bag of confetti, some plastic bananas, one which opened to reveal three smaller bananas within, a stuffed monkey that had some sort of remote control mouth that I couldn't quite figure out, an inflatable version of the cartoon character SpongeBob, and several unopened packages of batteries. Stuffed at the bottom were a pirate coat, a pirate hat, and an eye patch. I looked at the truly random collection of materials in front of me, and swore, at first quietly, and then at a greater volume. I was screwed. I realized that I would have to look elsewhere for inspiration, as I wasn't finding it in Nathan's accursed shopping bag. I then spent a fruitless hour digging through my own act, pulling out those pieces that might be suitable for an audience of youngsters. My act is not particularly adult, but it does ask the audience to be hip to certain cultural references. It also requires the people who volunteer to be able to do grown-up things, like 
follow instructions and care about the outcome. From my hour-long act, I was able to find about three minutes of material that I felt would be suitable for a young audience. The next hour was spent downstairs in the shop, examining each and every item for its likely kids show potential. After rummaging through all the stock in the store, as well as numerous discontinued items that had long since been relegated to the far corner of the basement, I found several possible candidates and carried them up the stairs to my apartment. Harry, who must have heard me banging around, swung open his door in time to see me passing by, my arms overflowing with a bizarre and sundry collection of objects. He was naturally curious and asked me why I had taken to shoplifting at such a late age. I explained my predicament, and he nodded sympathetically throughout my recitation of what Nathan had done to me and what I planned to do to him upon his return. Not to worry, Harry said, opening his apartment door wider and gesturing that I should come in. Help has arrived. Of course, Buster, you wouldn't know this, Harry said to me once he had persuaded me to put down the armload of junk I had lifted from the store, take a seat on his worn and lumpy couch. But I spent the first six or seven years of my career as a children's magician. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. But a fellow couldn't make a living at it. At least not back then. So I switched gears and went into stage work with your aunt. Not that there was all that much more money in stage work, but it was better than the small change I'd been making before. I nodded patiently, waiting for the point of his story, which in typical Harry fashion could be just around the corner or several torturous miles down the road. My face must have betrayed my thoughts because he winked at me and headed toward the closet. Anyway, he said, as he opened the door and began to dig through the heavy winter clothes hanging there, all wool and corduroy. I was a pretty darn good kid's magician, if I do say so myself. And, being the pack rat that Alice always accused me of being, I hung on to all the pieces for that act. At least I think I did. He banged around in the closet for a few more moments before I heard a muffled, Aha! Then he emerged, dragging a worn black suitcase behind him. He set the case on its side in the middle of the living room and then went to his record collection, flipping through the albums for several seconds before finding the desired selection. He placed the vinyl disc on his beloved stereo, set the stylus on the disc, and returned once more to the black suitcase on the floor. What followed then was nothing short of astonishing. To the strains of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, Harry opened and unfolded the suitcase, which magically transformed into a waist-high table on a stand. He then proceeded to perform a magic act of such minimalism and beauty that I was literally awed sitting on the edge of the sofa, my mouth slack, using the simplest of materials, a spool of thread, two coins, three thimbles, a ball of yarn, a balloon, a hat pin, three jumbo playing cards, some flash paper, a single white plastic rose, and fez, he created a story that could only be called epic. He performed the routine, which flowed in sync with the music as if Gershwin had written it specifically for Harry, in complete silence. And yet, 
you'd swear that there were sound effects sprinkled throughout the act. It was thrilling and captivating. And when he reached the finale, during which he turned the white rose into a shower of white snowflakes that floated around him like the real thing, I actually found myself fighting back tears. It was quite simply magical. The music ended, and Harry took a dramatic bow. Well, he said, brushing off his hands and smoothing down his hair, even though not one was out of place. That's the gist of it. Pretty rusty on some of the bits. I've done the thimble routine better back in the day, I can tell you, but that gives you the general idea of the piece. All the props appear to be in working order, with the exception of the flash paper, which has seen better days. You'll want to grab a fresh packet, and you'll need more snow, that's for sure. But on the whole, you're all set to go. I stared up at him in amazement. I can't do that routine, I finally said. I mean, maybe if I had a couple of months to practice, and even then I'd suck at it. There's no way on earth I can learn that by tomorrow afternoon. Nonsense, he said, giving my head a playful swat. There's nothing to learn. There's not one effect in there you don't already know how to do. And the story flows in a logical order. I could have you up and running on this in 40 minutes. You're out of your mind, I said. And he gave me another swat on the head. Hey, careful there. You're whacking someone who was just in the hospital with a serious head injury. I'll give you a serious head injury, he mumbled. Buster, stop complaining and get on your feet, he continued as he turned back to the suitcase and began to reset the props. I knew that arguing would be a waste of time, and so I moved to where he was standing. And then, just as he's been doing since I was ten years old, Harry began to teach me his magic. His 40-minute estimate was off by about two hours, but he was right. By the end of the night, under his often scolding direction, No, no, what are you, all thumbs? That's the clumsiest execution I've seen in my entire life. Do it this way. I'd learned the flow of the routine and was able to stumble through a performance that was just this side of adequate. I spent all of the next morning working on it in my apartment, adding some refinements of my own, And by noon, I was reasonably certain that I could, if only for 20 minutes, create the illusion of being a kid's magician. Are you off to amaze and delight? Harry asked as he looked up from his regular table at the bar next door. He was surrounded by a couple of the Minneapolis mystics, Max Monarch and Abe Ackerman, and the three of them were eating Juicy Lucy burgers, swapping stories, and topping each other with complaints about their various aches and pains. I'm all set, I said. I practiced all morning, got the stuff in the car, and I locked up the shop. I looked at my watch with plenty of time to spare. Then sit down and eat the rest of this burger, Harry said as he pulled out the chair next to him. There's enough here to feed an army, and you can't do a show on an empty stomach. I sat next to him, and he pushed the plate in my direction. I hadn't eaten breakfast, and suddenly lunch seemed like a good idea. I make it a rule never to eat before a show, Max said as he wiped a glob of hamburger grease off his chin. Makes me logy. How can you tell, Abe said, taking a bite of potato chip and shooting a playful glance at Harry, who smiled in return. Well, during your show, you may be wide awake, but believe me, the audience is sound asleep, Max shot back. At least I have an audience, 
What was the size of that last crowd you played for? Two homeless guys and a stray cat? It was a small crowd, Max admitted, but I had them in the palm of my hand. They just about fit. Ah, you with the jokes all the time. I don't care how big the crowd is. I've had audiences of just one person that I've amazed, he said, starting to build up steam. Here it comes, Abe said quietly to Harry. For example, you may not be aware of this fact, but I performed one-on-one -on -one for the late, great Di Vernon. Harry and Abe both mouthed Di Vernon in sync with Max. This was Max's big story. I fooled him. The professor himself flummoxed him and baffled him, he continued. Blinded him with artistry, Abe said. Pulled the rug out from under him, Harry added. Make jokes all you want, Max said, turning to the two cronies. Di Vernon was the only magician to ever fool Harry Houdini, and I fooled Di Vernon. So do the math, that's all I'm saying. He turned back to me, suddenly ignoring the other two men. That's cool, Max, I said, feigning ignorance on the topic. How'd you fool him? Here's how I did it, Max said, leaning in closer. Di Vernon knew all the tricks. Believe me, he was a sharp one. So all I did was I added a flourish to an old standard. And Di, God rest his soul, got caught up in the flourish. The flourish made him think I was doing one trick, but I was actually doing another trick altogether. Max continued with the story, relating the post-trick conversation he'd had with Di Vernon and the lavish praise he had received from the master. But I wasn't listening anymore. I was thinking about what had fooled Di Vernon. He thought it was one trick, but it was actually another. He got fooled by the flourish. What's a flourish? Deirdre said once I got her on the phone. What are you talking about? The ambitious card, I said, as I held my iPhone in one hand and steered with the other. The killer wants us to think he's doing the ambitious card, but that's not the trick he's doing. Eli, he's not doing a trick. He's killing people. Yes, I understand that, but he wants us to think he's doing the ambitious card. That's a trick where the same card keeps turning up again and again and again. But that's not the trick he's really doing. That's just the flourish. I think he's doing a version of one ahead. Deirdre sighed into the phone. And what is one ahead? I checked my rearview mirror as I merged onto the freeway headed toward St. Paul. It's a technique more than a trick, but the idea is that the magician has information that his audience doesn't know he has. He's one ahead. He knows this piece of information, and he spends the whole trick covering that up. And how does that apply here? The killer knew all along who his primary victim was going to be, Ariana Dupree. The other psychics were murdered to make it look like she was just part of a series, just one of a bunch of psychics who were being killed. She was the main trick. The others were just a flourish, just like the playing card. We think he's doing one trick when he's actually doing another. And who is this he you're talking about? Her tone told me she was graduating from placating me to being just a little bit interested in what I was saying. Michael, Ariana's assistant, her boyfriend, boy toy, whatever he was. I don't know his last name, but he runs her store. 
He ran her life, and according to him, he's set to inherit everything she's got, which I think is probably a lot. Is that all you have? He had access to cyanide because they use it at the store for cleaning jewelry. He certainly had access to Ariana's apartment, and he's strong enough to have thrown her over the balcony. There was a long silence on the phone. I could tell she was considering all the angles. So, if his goal was to kill Ariana, why make the attempt on Franny? <sighs> to make it look like Ariana's death was just one in a series. To make it less special, I said, emphasizing that last word. Okay, she said slowly. That's all interesting, but if this Michael guy killed Ariana, what was Boone doing in her apartment? And how did Michael get in and out of her building without showing up on the security tapes? Now it was my turn for the long, thoughtful pause. I'm not sure, I said finally. Boone and Nova were on the rocks. Ariana was Nova's former lover. Michael was Ariana's current lover. There's something there. I just can't connect the dots yet. I don't know, Eli. This all sounds a little far-fetched. Do you have anything that's any nearer-fetched? What's the harm of sending homicide detective Fred Hutton to talk to him? I could hear her sigh on the other end of the line. I tell you, Deirdre, there's something in this. Trust me, I'm not far off. I'll see what I can do. That means it's as good as done. But she didn't hear this last bit. She had already hung up. Spider-Man was crying. At least it looked like he was crying. With a mask pulled over his head, it was tough to know for sure, but he had his head down and his shoulders were quaking a bit. He was sitting on the curb in front of a large, expansive house in North Oaks, and to be honest, he looked sort of pitiful. North Oaks is just northeast of St. Paul, a private community filled with large homes, wooded areas, and lakes. Expensive cars were parked haphazardly up and down the street near the house. I found a space further away than I would have liked and lugged the boombox and Harry's old black suitcase toward the house. It must have been a magical case because the nearer I got to the house, the heavier it seemed to get. I stopped to catch my breath a few feet away from Spider-Man. He didn't look up. Are you okay? I asked tentatively. I could hear a sniffle from within the mask, and he turned to look at me. His eyes were the only part of his face that were visible. There was a redness around the eye holes that was, I think, unrelated to the mask. He looked me over, top to bottom, then noticed the suitcase and the boombox. You here for the birthday party? he asked, his voice sounding hoarse. Yes? Well, all I can say is, good luck. A rough crowd? The worst. Seven-year-olds with money. They're like a disease. He lowered his head again, and I heard another sniffle muffled by the mask. I'm done with this. This is just brutal. I'm going back into phone sales. I could sense that he wanted to be left alone, so I picked up the suitcase and boombox and headed up the driveway toward the house. I was met at the front door by one of the official party planners, a blonde woman in her late 20s. She wore a freshly starched red polo shirt with an emblem on it that read P2, Perfect Parties. Her name tag read Candy. 
Candy radioed my arrival to some sort of party-planning war room where an authoritative voice noted with pleasure that I was early and okayed my admission into the house. I was led through the immense house by the too perky Candy, who chatted non-stop about how well the party was going, interrupted by two brief and tense radio conversations with the crew on the back lawn, who, apparently, were running into some difficulties while setting up the fireworks. She ended both dialogues by harshly hissing, I don't care, just do it, into the radio. A problem with the fireworks? I asked. No, she said confidently. They're just worried that it's going to rain, which apparently is a problem in their world, but not in mine. The forecast said snow, not rain, and I'm more inclined to believe the National Weather Service than this pack of idiots. Believe me, one way or another, there will be fireworks. I can imagine, I said. Candy steered me down a wide staircase that emptied into a mammoth lower-level room. One wall was filled with windows and sliding glass doors that overlooked the lawn and a lake beyond. The other walls were covered in what looked to be real wood. The carpet was wall-to-wall, and that's saying something, because there was a lot of distance between the four walls. The room was brimming with children, running, playing, screaming, and in some cases, all three. Food was available at the far end of the room, where linen-covered tables had been set up and the red-shirted staff was serving custom cake and homemade ice cream to kids who had clearly already had too much cake and ice cream. A few of the parents stood around in small clusters, doing a terrific job of ignoring their children and the bedlam they were creating. Most of the children were gathered around a new Wii game, which played on the largest plasma screen I had ever seen outside of a major league ballpark. This is your performance space? Candy said, pointing to one corner of the room. You can set up here. Great, I said, realizing that she had placed me in the only dark space in an otherwise well-lit room. I called her toothy smile and raised her a grin. It should just be a couple of minutes. As I began to set up the props and plug in the boombox, one of the parents, a balding guy in his 40s with a drink in one hand, stopped by to watch. You're the next entertainer, he asked. Yes, I'm a magician. You're a braver man than I, he said. This group has chewed up and sped out a lot of performers in the two hours I've been here. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine, I said. Where's the birthday boy? Take a guess, he said, using his drink to point toward the kids gathered around the Wii. One kid pushed another kid over and grabbed the game's remote. That's mine, whined the kid who was literally snot-nosed. I'm going to play until I win. He pushed another kid out of the way and hit the reset button on the game box. Wow, someone's a little wired. What's his name? The guy shrugged. I forgot his given name. Round here, we just call him Satan. He looked into the suitcase as I pulled my few props out of it. You got any tricks in there that will make him disappear? He asked hopefully. Oh, probably, I said. But currently, I'm a person of interest in three homicides and one attempted homicide, so I'm trying to keep a low profile. He chuckled awkwardly at this and then pretended that someone across the room wanted to see him. Anyway, have a great show, he said as he scurried away. As it turned out, I did have a great show. One of the best of my career, I think. Over the years, I've had a lot of experience performing for bad audiences. 
I've performed for drunk audiences and angry audiences and bored audiences and exhausted audiences. For one Fortune 500 company, I performed right after they finished a memorial ceremony for a well-loved and recently deceased employee. That was a cheery show. For another company, I was the entertainment for the employees who didn't reach their sales goals that year. People who did reach their sales goals got a private performance by Bruce Springsteen. Even I didn't want to be at my show that night. So I know bad audiences, and believe me, this started out as a bad audience. Once I was all set up, Candy announced that The Magician was starting. The announcement fell on deaf ears. All the kids who weren't stuffing their faces with cake and ice cream were gathered around the TV and didn't look like they were leaving anytime soon. Nevertheless, Candy gestured that I should begin, and so I did. I pressed play on the boombox, cranked the volume, and George Gershwin did his best to compete with the music and sound effects emanating from the television's theater-style sound system. I had made only minor alterations to Harry's act, not so much to personalize it, but to make it possible for me to perform with any authority after seeing it for the first time less than 24 hours earlier. The biggest change I made was the addition of two inanimate audience members, which turned out to have been prophetic, because when I began the show, I had exactly zero actual audience members. I created this fake audience by taking a couple of balloons and blowing them up with the tube that snaked down my sleeve from the helium oxygen tank that I had strapped to my back. Once inflated, I quickly sketched a face on each one with a black marker. Then I began the show proper, while these two balloon heads floated at eye level nearby, seemingly watching me perform. With the balloon audience in place, I began to execute the simple moves that Harry had so artfully strung together. It really was a beautiful and elegant routine, and I was having a great time with the material. I got so involved in going through the act and playing to the balloon heads that I was surprised to look up at one point and see that two kids had wandered over from the video game to check me out. Moments later, they were joined by another kid, and then another. I made no effort to acknowledge them and kept playing to the balloon heads, which somehow must have made the act all the more magnetic, for every time I glanced up, a few more kids had joined my crowd. I persisted in steadfastly ignoring them, instead directing the act toward the floating balloons, occasionally reaching out and turning the balloon heads so that they were facing me and not the wall. This got a huge laugh every time I did it, and so I found several more opportunities to work it into the act. By the time I reached the climax of my show, I had all the kids seated in rapt attention in front of me, with the exception of the birthday boy. Satan sat glumly alone in front of the large television screen, doing his best to pretend that he was exactly where he wanted to be. For a few seconds, I considered trying to do something to draw him in, and then thought, to hell with him, and continued to perform for my audience. If he wanted to be a seven-year-old North Oak spoiled brat, that was fine by me. I reached the finale of the act, turning the white rose into a snowstorm, and was greeted by a tremendous round of applause. Well, as tremendous as you can get from 30 tiny pairs of sticky hands clapping together. 
Then the parents set down their drinks and joined in, giving the ovation a bit more volume. I feigned surprise at the crowd that had appeared before me, then grabbed two long strands from the ball of yarn on the table in front of me. I tied one to each of the floating balloon heads and presented them with a bow to the first two kids who had come over for the show. This produced yet another round of applause. That was terrific, Candy said, as she escorted me back to the front door. Good thing she did, as I could easily have gotten lost in the maze of halls and doorways. Glad you liked it. The kids seemed to like it too, I said, hefting the suitcase and the boombox through the wide front door. Sorry I couldn't entice the birthday boy into the fun. Candy looked around and then whispered, Oh, screw him, the privileged little fucker. I hope he chokes on a Lego. Then she handed me my check, smiled sweetly, and closed the door. After I made the short hike back to my car and got everything loaded into the trunk, I checked my phone to see if I'd received any messages from Deirdre. She hadn't called back, but I did find an enticing text message that had come from Megan about ten minutes before. Hey, where are you? Are you interested in having some fun? Megan. I sat in the front seat and quickly typed a response. Just finished a gig in North Oaks. Fun? Yes, please. I waited impatiently, and a few moments later, I got a response. Perfect. I'm at the Wabashaw Caves. Can you join me? Megan. That was intriguing, I thought, but it didn't stop me from quickly typing a response. I can be there in 20 minutes, I wrote. I hit send and started the car. A smarter man, one less smitten by a beautiful woman and pumped up on the adrenaline rush that comes after a great show, might have recognized the warning signs in those text messages, the clear signs that something was amiss. Clearly, I was not that man. And that's chapter 18, where the kids' show is done and Eli's on to uh, running into Megan. You know, the idea of creating, or in this particular case, learning a full routine overnight. When I wrote it, I wasn't sure it was possible. I know you've had to learn things very quickly for corporate events and things like that. But to start from zero uh, and walk in with a, with a full routine, I thought might be a bit much. And then we asked our friends, Morgan West, who were on the uh, podcast uh, much earlier this uh, season, that very question, is it unrealistic to create a routine overnight? And here's uh, what they had to say about that. I'd say first off that creating a routine in a night is not unrealistic at all. We we have we have got routines that we've taken months to work out what we want to do with them, and we've got routines where, by means of necessity, we have gone. Well, we need this on the tomorrow. way there. <laughs> you know, yeah, Let's on the way there. I, I I remember one gig in Perth, Australia, where I think we just decided walking to the venue. Right, well, we need another five minutes. Do you want to try and work out doing a six card repeat? I think you know what a buckle count is. Are you, are you yep. all right with that? that I'll tell you what, on I'll, the way. I'll count it and do some number nonsense and I'll mess around with numbers and you, right, great. Let's try that. Let's see if it works. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. It wasn't great. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't great, but we've done that stuff before. Or we turned up, the first time we turned up the Magic Castle, we realized that we couldn't, we couldn't reveal bank card information um, because the banks are all different and it wouldn't work. So we had to so switch we went, American driving licenses. Yeah, and so over, overnight, we memorized all the American driving lessons and rewrote the... And obviously, that is starting from original routine. But honestly, you can write a routine in a night, and the magicians that tell you you can't are the ones that are too scared to try. Um, 
and it may not be good, but it, but if you ride it overnight and then perform it 30 times, it'll be pretty good by the end of that 30 times. Yeah, you'll, you'll get there. For us, it depends on what we want to do. It, honestly, a routine starts with an idea. And that idea could be the idea for an effect. It could be the idea for a slight that we want to use. It could be the idea for a plot. It could be the idea for a story. It could be the idea for a point we want to make. Um, or just or like it could... a visual image. Yeah, it might be the Sometimes... thing we're going... In, there was a thing... We saw a thing at some convention a while ago of someone doing a trick with a cactus and a balloon. The cactus and a balloon. And basically the trick ends with the cactus inside the balloon. The imagery of that is really nice. Just the, the opening idea of, here's a balloon, here is the enemy of the balloon, the cactus. That is such an inherently nice idea that you go, well, there's something there. Yeah. And I, I think nowadays our general go-to for writing is, yeah, it's just any idea. And usually for us, it's one idea. Because our early days, our routines would be a three ideas, four ideas, five ideas, all jammed in together. And over the years, we've learned that actually clarity of idea is far more important in a routine than quantity. Because again, you just want it to be nice and pleasant for your audience to follow. You, you don't want your audience to have to do too much work. You need them to do a bit of work because they'll switch off and go to sleep. And an example is, so in, our, in one of our kids shows, we have a trick with an egg bag. And we've watched, we've watched many magicians over the years do the egg bag trick, Hobson included, obviously, and gone, there is some really nice bits in an egg bag routine. You know, they show the bag to be empty or whatever, and you take an egg out, and it's an egg. And eggs are very magical items themselves because they sort of are incredibly fragile. You know, the idea of an egg is this thing of, well, you can't have been doing something dodgy with that. It would break. And then we started on this idea for our kids' show, and we're like, okay, how about we, why are we doing the egg bag? What is it? Because it's a bit of a weird nonsensical trick because it's putting an egg in a bag and then showing it to be gone or then it doesn't quite there's no real logic to it it, it exists uh, because an egg is a fragile object and you can't smack it in a bag that that's why that, the trick exists it exists know? within itself and so that thing so because in our kids shows i'm kind of mean and don't like the kids and reese is kind of fun and, the, and does like the kids it occurred to us that the best way of doing a trick like that is basically for it to be a pointless magic trick that mr west is trying to do and as is always the way with our things the sort of rule of thumb is that Mr. West is going to fail and the kids are going to succeed. So we end up getting a kid up to prove that only I can do this trick because it's my trick. Only I can do it. Let's get a kid up as well and I'll show that I can do it and they can't. And, and obviously a series of things happens where I completely fail to do the trick and the kid makes a bunch of things appear and then Reese makes a bunch of things appear out the bag. But in doing that, we realise that the trick, therefore, because I say it's making a, making, producing an egg from a bag, the trick has to then end with turning with with producing the projection of a real egg. If at any other point you do in the trick, the trick's over. Mm -hmm. So then you're writing the routine going, well, what else can we produce? We also realized that at no point in the routine could Mr. West succeed in producing anything from the bag because we Mr. West needs to be seen to fail and get increasingly cross. And we it, also realized there's 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 quite a nice thing about the idea of sort of really taking the words quite literally as well. You know, producing an egg from a bag can mean taking an egg from inside a bag or it can mean turning a bag into an egg. And so actually that's where it ends is turning the bag into the egg because that's just a natural kind of, Mr. Morgan's been doing all of these things and not quite getting it right, haven't quite got colored eggs and this and this and this. And then when they when finally understands, oh, you mean produce an egg from a bag? Got you, that got I can it. do, bam, 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 there you go. It's just finding that idea, that core idea and running with it. And, and I think you- happens. We have a, a pretty good sense now of when you've got an idea like that, finding that moment that feels like the idea has been completed. Mm. So that moment where you go, oh, 
And if we produce, if we turn the bag into an egg, then we can say we produce an egg from a bag, and it feels like the trick has come to its natural end. And again, there's a thing in Partrix where we talk about how we don't like kicker endings to tricks because an a, an ending should be an ending, like it, it should feel like a resolution. And if you if you have a trick where you go, and there's the big final reveal, but also this, then it's like, well, what was the final reveal about? You know, in, in a magic trick, you don't have the luxury of ten minutes of credits scrolling whilst you finish the drink before you get the last scene. Mm-hmm. You need to get it done. Sp- Pronto. In the film, in the film Die Hard, uh, you know, he throws Alan Rickman out the window and saves the day, and everyone's and the building hasn't been blown up, and they've stopped the robbery and all that kind of stuff. And then um, the enormous German bloke, whose name I'm banking on, come rises out of the rubble just when you think everything rises out of the rubble, raises his game, and then um, Raymond Paul Johnson shoots him. Which some people I think would view as so it's a bit of a kicker end because it feels like it's ended, but it hasn't. But actually, I think what that is is that's where at the point at which John and Holly have had their resolution at the end of Die Hard. Mm-hmm. And Raymond Johnson's character hasn't. It is his own resolution at the end of his story, not the end of John Hoy's story. And I think a, a, a good routine makes sense and has a thing we when it ends, you feel like you go, that is the end. And I can feel that's the end because it's very clearly all of the sort of the narrative arc routine has come to a satisfying conclusion. Yes, leave it to Morgan West to uh, include an example from the movie Die Hard uh, to to support a point of theirs. And that's uh, one of the reasons I love them is they just, their pop culture reach uh, never exceeds their grasp. It's true. And I think even you listen to them and they said, you know, sometimes we work for months to try to figure a routine out. Uh, the fact that they have been working together as long as they have and have been friends as long as they have, it probably... Uh, allows them to go ahead and take a risk like hey let's try this thing uh let's how about we do this what about this and this and let's just try it and see what happens yeah i I don't think listening to them i don't think that's sort of de rigueur for them i think that's something that they could do based on their long-standing friendship their long-standing performance together Mm -hmm. uh and it's not something i don't think anybody would suggest Oh, yeah, you just whip it together. I mean, every magic book that I've ever read said, you know, don't take it out of the box and do it for somebody yeah. after you read the instructions you want to. So, I mean, I, they have the luxury as professionals and as partners to be able to sort of do that where yeah. most of us would go, what do you want of your mind? Yeah. Although, as Harry points out to Eli uh, in the routine that he has to learn overnight, there's nothing in it that is new to Eli. There's no moves, there's no slights, there's nothing that he hasn't done a million times in another form. He's just putting it in a, in a, a new package, and and that makes it a little bit a little bit easier. But I also thought it was interesting that uh, they commented on something that we've heard uh, this season. I believe Chris Hendricks mentioned it. I know Derek Hughes talked about it, which was the idea of kickers, the idea of Ending a trick and then having a thing on top of it and a thing on top of it and a thing on top of it. Uh, next season, we'll be talking to David Parr, uh, who will kindly take apart a routine that Eli does in The Bullet Catch. And um, I know David is going, the first thing he'll say is, it, it just doesn't end. He, he needs to end it. And um, I think that's interesting that it's the, these really, really smart performers are saying, yeah, do less, do less. Let the trick yeah. end and do less. And I imagine that's not an easy thing to learn because if you're getting positive reaction, you keep doing stuff. Look a little more, please. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real temptation when you're on stage if it's going well to try to uh, to to try to overreach. And I will often remind myself in my own head 
uh, especially in corporate situations, um, I don't need a home run. I just got to get on base. So, and if I'm on base, I, I don't, you know, let's not try to steal. Let's just try to get to second, then get to third and get home. Let's not try to do, because sometimes then you, you think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to swing hard here. And, and that's when now I now I, I have to go back to the, and build back up to where I was. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I fully agree that less is often more. Anyway, this is a packed episode. We need to keep moving because we already had two interviews and the chapter. So next episode uh, is going to be a real treat. We have got uh, Tina Leonard. Uh, she's an amazing performer. Um, she's going to come and talk about creating and honing a routine. And because Eli just had to learn a routine, I thought it'd be fun to talk to someone who, who really has spent time on making her routine great. So join us next time for episode 120, when we'll do chapter 19, and we get to listen to the wonderful Tina Leonard. Take good care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.